0: You're listening to Counterculture on RCR.
1: Reality Check Radio.
0: You're with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and joining me now for Media Matters. Good morning, Marty.
1: Good morning, Marie. How are you doing?
0: I am well, but it's been a pretty tough week around the country this week.
1: Yeah, it's it's been awful, hasn't it? There's uh, we're just still. Uh, finding out about the extent of the loss of life in the Loafer Hostel fire, and uh, yeah, two dead children aged one and four in Northland. Of course, the the uh, young people lost in the caving tragedy.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's been a um, really tough week for Northland this week. I have to say it's yeah, and it and it is tough. You know, when you look at all the other things that go on out there, particularly in light of the budget tomorrow, sometimes it brings it back home, doesn't it? That there are real people out there and they're hurting and uh, that hurt is very real.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and I guess it's always a challenge to ascribe equal value to each human life. And there are a lot of people who lose their lives that we don't hear about and some we hear more about, but every loss of life is a, is a tragedy and uh, yeah, hopefully makes us all be a bit nicer to each other. Let's start talking about uh, the budget,
0: shall we? Yes, let's start with the budget. It is going to be pivotal for Robinson, I think, this year. Being an election year, the spotlight is on. If any opposition party is worth its salt, one of the things that they can highlight with any elements of the budget is the lack of achievement. I mean, is there a scorecard, an achievement scorecard for every other budget? This is the sixth budget. I mean, Mm. have we scored budgets one through five is there been a pass or fail rate with those I would say that there's probably been more fails than passes I'm looking at it thinking what is going to be different to this budget lots of big lofty promises a bit of fiscal sugar thrown around I do think he's going to throw some belt tightening in there because he just he will need to I think he's got pressure from the Reserve Bank to do so but it's anyone's guess isn't it
1: the economist Cameron Bagri was quoted in the Sunday Star Times article on uh, the budget saying, if you look at the track record of the government over the last five years, every budget has been a bigger budget than what was anticipated because they haven't been able to keep their hands off the loot. And, uh, you know, get back to that uh, comparison I made before about a Marxist student politician being given a credit card. You know, you're hardly surprised when they're not responsible with it.
0: Do you think he will go hardcore this year? That he will do a spray and pray with the cash to try and buy some votes?
1: I mean, this is the infuriating thing, isn't it? That you know that he's not thinking what's good for the country. He's thinking what's going to...
0: Keep my uh, job.
1: Keep, yeah, my seat on the ninth floor, whatever it is.
0: Oh, I thought you were meaning a seat at Bellamy's. Okay, you know the seat on the ninth floor. (laughs) Yep, good.
1: It's incredibly cynical and... I've been looking a lot at the size of the public service. It's a bit of a bugbear of mine, and I heard David Seymour quoted on uh, Mike Hosking. He said that the public sector's grown by, I think, 14,000 employees. And so I did a bit of digging in that, and everyone's using skewed data, but the thing that's constant in the review of the budget is just a lack of fortitude in terms of being able to say, well, look, you know, if we had to start again, could we do it with less than 395,000 people working in the public sector, not counting private contractors?
0: That number again, 395,000.
1: Yeah, that's from publicservice.govt.nz.
0: I'd love to know how many of those are outside what I would call Frontline public service. So for me, frontline public service: are doctors, nurses, teachers, uh, people who are actually directly public-facing. Yeah. You know, everyday people facing. If you skim that num out of it, how many of those are in the back rooms? We
1: you talk about about trimming public service. It's always, like, ah, well, you well, you want less teachers, do you? <laughs> There's so much fat to cut before you get to uh, to the teachers or the police or the fire service. I don't think anyone, you know, everyone wants effective teachers, although you could argue for charter sort being a lot um, more effective. The thing um, with,
0: with growing a public service, it's a bit like what's going on in the United States and having these open borders that people are flooding across. By bringing more and more people into the public service, you're essentially growing your voter base because the last thing you want to do is to have all of these people that you now employ, but you could potentially not be employing if you're going to be making cuts to the public service and the monologue today i've just had this thing in my head ringing all week it's like a an earworm, and in a song about comfort and how we've become comfortable with life as a generalization and yes there are people out there in discomfort and i think what brought it home for me is what's been going on here in the bay in terms of so many people displaced from the cyclone And yet the support and care and compassion shown by New Zealanders for those people is not actually getting to them. It's getting snarled up with all of these people in these sort of backroom jobs. And even within non-governmental organisations like Red Cross, for example, who is headed up by Sarah Stewart Black. I think she was civil defence from memory, and I think she cropped up with the volcanic uh, eruption. So this is someone who was a very high-functioning public servant that is now running this organisation with Red Cross. You know, we've got people hurting. We've got old people in East Valley literally digging out silt with their hands, not getting any support. The money is not getting to them. The money that was raised from the lotto is not getting to these people.
1: Yeah, Yet there was some some Infuriating. Infuriating. Like- I'm struggling to find it a little bit, but someone said, oh, you know, nobody doubts that the people involved, uh, you know, have the best intentions. Yes, but
0: the, the, the road to hell was paved with
1: those. Yeah. Well, I, I even think that's giving them a little more too much credit. I think a lot of people do cynically run not for profit. You know, if you look at the figures of what actually gets to where it's, you know, what tugs at people's heartstrings to donate money, it's it's not unusual for it to be 5%. Mm. No. You know, just like the tax, you know, if, when you pay tax and that tax ends up in a beneficiary's household, uh, there's all sorts of uh, drag and inefficiency that reduces the uh, sum involved from when it's taken forcefully off people to when it ends up in somewhere else. And that's, mm-hmm. again, you know, that um, workforce of... 395,000 people. And you know, the other telling thing about that figure is of those employees in the central government sector comprise about 88% of public sector employees, while the other 53,200 or 12% are employed in local government. And that's something Oliver Hartwich often talks about. He says Germany's central government's smaller than New Zealand's. You know, this was another thought that I had after talking about what, you know, we'd do if we were national. What Mm. I would like to see is, a uh, very well-planned devolution of power back out to the regions. Almost uh, a
0: Swiss-based system.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'd like each one to have their own plan. Uh, you know, one of the figures I often trotted out was that in the 10 years before I left Gisborne, that region of less than 50,000 people, I think, had had $10,000 million from central government, which is $10 billion. When you say $10,000 you kind of see it mm. stacked up a bit more. And in that 10 years, as far as I could tell, very little changed and quite a few things got worse. It's impossible to spend $10 billion without having something good happen to talk about. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. I have to admit that number is almost like, you know, with the budget coming up, how many bureaucrats does it take to change a light bulb? Obviously, 395,000. It will be interesting to see what he does. I will be watching it with interest because – It is that level of comfort. I talked about it in monologue. And I think you're right. There is a lot of people out there that are starting to hurt and they're starting to wonder, well, why am I hurting? Where is this hurt coming from? What do we do to to make it stop? And whether that be... Disaster relief, and this is what voters, you know, coming up October fourteen. I'm still undecided. I'll put that out there. I think i have sorted in terms of local candidate, but party vote, I'm I'm an open book at this stage. Yeah,
1: I'd have I, to say I am too. And after yeah. seeing uh, David Seymour um, be so rude to the young man who was asking about the mandating of experimental gene therapy, uh, and saying finishing, dismissing him by saying no one cares about you, mate. I'm going to struggle to to vote for him, despite the fact that I like a lot of their policy.
0: For the first time ever, I think I'm going to become a single issue voter. And I've never done that before. And that, for me, is is is
1: the
0: Bill of Rights and respecting the Bill of Rights and who is going to actually uphold the New Zealand Bill of Rights uh, for all its citizens. And at this stage, that, to me, is going to be the single issue because we know that the current lot, none of them, stood up for the Bill of Rights.
1: Yeah. Not one. Well, David Seymour instructed all his MPs that they weren't to go and talk to the people who are protesting that. I have a real hard time with uh, with that. The classic liberal party that uh, believes in mandatory um, experimental gene therapy.
0: Yeah, I think you really had hit on the cord in terms of taking everything back local that is where this is going to start. It's the groundswell of people. You're you're right. I think local governance is actually, they have stripped power away from local governance.
1: It's a fool's errand. Local Hmm. government is a fool's errand because it doesn't get the funding and it has to, I mean, if you've been on a board that uh, works for the health system, you spend all your time just scrabbling around for money and connecting the dots and very little time actually thinking, well, what would we like to achieve? And, and i'm sure a lot of people in central government think that and before i left actually i wrote an article about what the east coast should do if it hypothetically had an, uh, elected a um an independent candidate who was there to represent the east coast you know you you could quite easily if you did that could do all sorts of interesting things particularly if you had a billion dollars a year to play with, you could have, there's no reason you couldn't have the vast majority of your kids literate. You could really make some work on stopping fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. You could replant rivers. You could do all that stuff that, you know, those eye-watering sums of money could do. And I guess that's um, the tough situation you get to, isn't it? It's not accidental that none of the stuff's getting done.
0: The belief I think New Zealanders had after the 2020 election, where, oh, but Labour is good in a crisis, so we will reward them for this. Well, I'm sorry, we've had a number of crises already this year. And you just need to take a look at the lead issue, uh, the lead story in the Sunday Star Times uh, to tell you, you know what, no, they're not. They certainly have completely fluffed this flood relief issue I really do believe It's just an absolute shit show And and I just hope people Do not reward them again But the polls There's an absolute whisker With those isn't there I mean we've had what Four polls out In this last week Three of them were quite concurrent And then there was the one outlier Which was Read Research uh, TV3 poll Was sort right. of the the one outlier Who is to believe pollsters But I have to say We are certainly heading for a case where a very, 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 very small minority of people will be dictating the outcome for the majority of New Zealand.
1: Again, you know, we've talked about this, but the, the big take-up from, from that, and this is in the uh, Thursday's New Zealand Herald, um, while the centre-right would be in a position to form a government, Prime Minister and Labour leader Chris Hipkins continues to prove far more popular than Luxon. Hipkins had held steady as preferred PM on 26%, while Luxon was at 20%, up from 19%. Act leader David Seymour had dropped to 6% from 9%, but here's where it gets juicy. Hipkins' net favorability score was positive 22%, 6 points lower than last month and down 11 points on his March peak of positive uh, 33%. Luxon, meanwhile, was at negative 7%, meaning more people gave him an unfavourable rating than favourable. And remember here, we're talking Chris Hipkins, who objectively has tits for hands. Like everything he did when he was, you know, in the five years he was in government as a minister, he fluffed. You know, his list of failures is...
0: Education, health, what else did he fluff? There there's a list. Oh, there was
1: a great like- thing by... Um, by uh, David Seymour, actually, just excoriated him. Yeah, really just tore him to bits and said, look, if you've got a business, don't let this guy be a director because mm. you'll, you'll go bankrupt.
0: Yes, with the polls, other than the fact that a very small percentage of people could be responsible in creating the net government in terms of decision-making, is, as you said, with those net gains and losses, well, actually both of those leaders had losses from the previous polls to this poll in terms of net Favorability. This to me, is this a signal that Kiwis are going, hmm, we don't quite like the meat and potatoes that's on the plate. What else is here? What else is on offer?
1: Yeah, the no frills and the guy on a $500,000 salary eating sausage rolls and being a man of the people. I've watched Matt King with interest. I think he lacks gravitas for what he's saying, which is that the government have cynically done what they did around COVID. Uh, I think he's still sort of in national politician, hail fellow, well met mode, but he's got some great people involved. The lady who's uh, represented for in the Bay of Plenty here, Kirsten Murph, that I know personally, and she is one of the sharpest people I've met in terms of she's a lawyer and has has written repeated, say, affidavits to to um, to government. So so, has has given them data that's impeccably referenced so they know and her latest um her latest uh one that she wrote shows clearly that even when both luxon and well it was ardern at the time but hipkins also when they were saying the best way to keep your community safe and slow the spread is is um is the vaccination they knew that the data showed it didn't slow transmission or stop the spread. Uh, but she's also submitted papers you know, that, that were obtained under uh, the Information Act that show that the focus groups and the marketing people thought that that was the best way to get people to get the jab, to, mm. to protect the family. It was, again, and, and Luxon knew.
0: They all knew. It's interesting, this election, because of, for the first time, I think, the minor parties. There is a big fractionated vote. There is a very disillusioned portion of the New Zealand voter base out there and they're certainly not seeing any of the five parties that are currently in government are speaking for them and of course this week has been the announcement of the new umbrella party with Brian Tamaki and co-leader Sue Gray and the new nation party Vision New Zealand and the outdoors and freedom party have all joined together under an umbrella If you want to know more about uh, what these guys have to say, certainly listen to Paul Brennan. He did an interview with Brian on Monday. Uh, He did another interview with Sue Gray yesterday. They're both excellent pieces if you want to know a little bit more. And we will be talking to Matt King as well this coming week. So we will be getting views from all of these minor parties and their leaders, which is great because they're not, I think Legacy Media will do their absolute best to give them very little airtime. The thing will be is who is currently sitting outside the circle is going to have enough gravitas to pierce that wall and actually get within governance.
1: That's the big wish. I think ACT um, will continue to, to rise. And I think, I mean, it depends what National do. I mean, my advice to National would be uh, for Christopher Luxon to say, so, hey, look, I'm going to step down as leader. I'll be deputy leader and I'll focus on policy to get us out of the mess we're in and to a brighter future while either Erica Stamford or... Um,
0: oh, You do have a fond spot for Erica, don't you?
1: It's just refreshing to me that I, I, uh, it wasn't because of misogyny that I didn't like dear leader. It was because she was incompetent. Just rolled turds and glitter all day. I think Erica Stanford's got a, a lot more substance to her and I, I think uh, she'd be a great representative for New Zealand. It would, it would um, yeah, be the old um, little manoeuvre. And I mm. think also Luxon would you know save mana by initiating that himself as little did. So yep. what's the deputy leader's name? Nicola Willis. I really like Nicola Willis too. I think she's great. But they're operating on the game plan. That's that's got them seeing them go negative now, and that's going to give them a blip in the polls. But the lethargic attitude of New Zealanders to the political parties comes from a, a lack of vision and a lack of yeah, you know, a lack of feeling that someone's got a plan to to make life better. You know, the cynical part of me, and it's, it's a growing, part, says that's deliberate. You know, because disillusioned people with no purpose are easier to control. If
0: people want to listen to some other political commentary on this, definitely listen to the political roundtable that was Friday, so if you go back to radio under Paul Brennan's show, the political roundtable, which was Olivia Pearson, Cam Slater, Cam Slater and, and, Chris and Chris Trotter, Trotter was brilliant. Oh. Olivia Pearson summed up what you were just saying beautifully, where she said, these men think to appear for, to women voters, you need to sort of be all soft and cuddly and lovely. She said, no, we want to see a strong leader. That's what we want to see. Hipkins leaves me cold. He's a wet lettuce leaf on a on a grey day.
1: I just would know. be really interesting once he gets out of his leadership position. It'd be disillusioning for him to see how Maori affections for him uh, dry up pretty quick because he's not the guy who typically. Um, has a great time with Māori, especially at school. He would have had his head flushed down the toilet a few times.
0: And I've just had Dailandi on, and we talked Mm -hmm. Māori politics. As you've alluded to in previous weeks, there is a conservative Māori vote out there who are increasingly getting more disillusioned. They were the traditional Māori voter that often voted Māori Party. They really saw their values reflected with um, Tariana Turia and Peter Sharples. That is now no longer the case and they are feeling cast adrift
1: in those leaders you normally see the the you know the, the tougher talk and and the anger and injustice or, or, and other issues balanced out by some charm and sweetness i i i never see that marma davis she just appears angry to me all the time same with mecca fightery i don't i don't see that Madam
0: davidson has never grown up outside what i call high school activism politics
1: yeah it was really funny i read uh again my old mate shane Tapot. actually I, I don't i've never met him but he um it's so funny when they almost connect the dots when it suits them he said uh Faitiri has implied that she was being suppressed because she is wahini Maori, but that doesn't hold water. Yes, wahini Maori are often treated badly in our institutions and overlooked for promotion, but that doesn't mean that every time Faitiri doesn't get what she wants that it's because of racism. Sort of draw that out more broadly to Maori as well. If Faitiri wants someone to blame, she should look at herself. Her standing has never recovered from her alleged assault of a staffer in 2018. That action and the temperament it highlights is surely why she did not get a promotion to Cabinet. Mm, They get so close.
0: They do. Speaking of ministers that get so close, uh, Aisha Viral was on Q&A last week and Paula Bennett wrote about it in her opinion piece and it was around the Pharmac funding because this with budget coming up this will be watched with interest. Pharmac is one of those entities that on paper is a really good idea it helps save us money it means that they can negotiate as a block to get good costs on drugs. Exactly. And it's a great idea. However, when it comes to new drugs, they're very, very slow. And when new drugs come to the market, they're always more expensive. So uh, the way the pharmaceutical industry works in terms of regular drugs is they have what they call a patent period. And so that's when a drug is released. It's released under its brand name. It's usually with one of the pharmaceutical giants, which has pulled hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars into R&D and testing supposedly, then the price tag gets attached to that drug, the drug rolls out to market, and there is a period of time where no one else can actually replicate that drug in any way, shape or form. There is a list called the 200 Essential Medicines List that's been around since time immemorial. When I worked in pharmacy, it was something that we had to learn. Apparently, they don't teach it now because there are a lot of new drugs that are now around. But what it does mean is those drugs are still core and they work. We have an over-reliance on those drugs in this country, and we're a bit slow on the uptake and bringing the new ones in. And an example of that is the Medicine Gap, which is actually run by Rachel Smalley. And she has found that 130 of the modern medicines that are currently available, only 41 so it's 130 modern mm-hmm. medicines outside that 200 list. Only 41 are available via Pharmac. And there have been campaigners like Malcolm Holland and Fiona Tolich, who have been working tirelessly and really emotionally to try and get drugs funded. And the blood, sweat and tears that many of these um, people, have advocates have to do to get these drugs funded is massive and usually at huge personal cost. Viral, on the other hand, said these people... The minister, Aisha Viral, insinuated on Q&A on Sunday are being paid by pharmaceutical companies to campaign for funding for a medicine. She said pharmaceutical companies may influence those campaigns, and they made it sound like these tireless advocates are on the take.
1: Wow. So close. close. I know.
0: It's just the the irony, Aisha.
1: years and years and years to get to $20 billion in profits. It, it took a couple of years for them to get to 40 over mm-hmm. COVID.
0: That's uh, Sunday Star Times, in the opinion, Paula Bennett, in it, the headline, Veril plays the person, not the issue.
1: Is it Herald on Sunday?
0: Is it Herald on, oh sorry, Herald on Sunday.
1: There was some really good analysis of, of the budget in both Sunday Star Times and the New Zealand Herald on Friday, actually. It was a really good article by Matthew Hooton, who's, I always always find his take on things is interesting, even though as a political operative, he's always got his own angle on things. He was talking about Grant Robertson's track record of bribing people with their own money or with money that he's borrowed against the future labor of their children, which is what we're doing. Uh, He said famously, Robertson was the beehive staffer most associated with interest-free student loans. Clark's 2004 Working for Families program and Cullen's 2005 Kiwi Save a scheme, including its $1,000 per head handout, which together Labour credits with beating Don Brash's National in 2005, and he almost, you know, was involved with Helen Clark. They really drove down National support in the months leading up to the election. So this isn't his first rodeo. How uh,
0: many more cards can they play though on that student vote? Because of course the card that got played was it in 2017 was the first year free the new, new tertiary students?
1: Again, I think we're dealing with the problem that there are enough people who will between the lines mm. and understand it. And, and again, there's a big gap left by nationals just boneheaded failure to wrest that crown of kindness off labour. If they did that They'd be way ahead in the polls. All national cares about is money. All national cares about is money.
0: You were talking earlier in terms of results, you know, in terms of Hipkins, but you look at the interest free student loans and then follow that up, you know, several years later when they're back at it again uh, with the f- fees free first year. What are the enrolments in our tertiary institutions looking like? Yeah. they're absolutely tanking and it's not just international students um data out yesterday was stating that uh, two international tertiary students are starting to return to universities but they're not returning to politics and they're not returning to high schools but every university with the exception of canterbury saw a stark reduction of kiwi young people going into tertiary education. t Pukinger is an absolute dog's breakfast. I mean, that should have been a merger that should have never have taken place. And who is suffering here? The kids, the students. Well, I mean,
1: that's the tip of the iceberg as well. When university enrolments are trending downwards because they've become so hopelessly corrupted with Marxism, but also because the schools are so hopelessly ineffective at... Preparing them. Yeah, at preparing kids for... um, any sort of academic rigor and I mean luckily university demands far less academic rigor now there was a really good analysis in uh, the Sunday Star times but again it was pretty no one was really saying anything terribly groundbreaking just they wanted R&D tax credits and cyclone recovery we want to you know Brett O'Malley, we want to see a responsible budget that funds core services, benefits us all, enables innovation, and gives business a pipeline of skilled skilled workers. We also want to see a budget that supports modernizing the New Zealand economy, prepares us for carbon neutrality, and ensures we're internationally competitive. They're all singing from the same sheet, really.
0: I'd love to see a budget that would actually show accountability for every single dollar that's been spent into the public service. There's an well, interesting got concept. For
1: that, didn't They They did. You know, oh, how much is that going to cost? I don't know about that. It's like, well, but, but again, National still absolutely refuses to talk about borrowing. I don't know why that is. Nicola Willis was saying, she said, oh, the government's spending an extra billion dollars a week. Their tax takers has, has gone up. You know, they're taking an extra hundred million dollars off New Zealanders. It's like, well, There's still $900 million that you're not talking about there, Nicola. That's coming from the printing presses.
0: Of course, also this week was released, was the letter from the 97 of the wealthiest New Zealanders. But when you actually dive down into that letter, they're not actually that wealthy, saying they wanted to pay more tax. And this is after, of course, the IRD releasing their report saying the top wealthiest people in New Zealand paid the least tax. Now, I'm not going to get into a debate over whether or not they pay enough tax. However, I did see, I actually dived into the fluffy parts of the paper, which I know is somewhere that you would never have gone. And this is actually in the spy section on the Herald on Sunday. And it's uh, Vera Alves, and Alves, Alves, Alves. She starts the piece, I knew we were into trouble here. Today, I'm going to take a break about talking from the Kardashians and whatever else the internet is talking about and rebelling against this column's own tagline. The headline is Some rich people are worth listening to. And she says so let me a person who is not entirely sure she knows what the word inflation really means or who hyperventilates at the mere thought of logging onto her online bank account be the voice of these unheard rich people saying something i never thought i'd say for god's sake listen to rich people remember people these people vote okay vera has a vote
1: oh dear there was all sorts of advice like that. There was also the 23-year-old sex therapist telling us how to have better sex lives. If you can't have a great sex life when you're a 23-year-old woman, you're uh, you're missing something.
0: So amongst the people in this letter, Les Mills, uh, CEO Philip Mills, EcoStraw founder Malcolm Rands, and um, Dame Susan DeVoy, also know Ian Taylor was in that list, A number of people said, well, if they want to pay more tax, they can pay more tax. Well, Vera answers that because she said tax laws as they stand do not allow voluntary tax payments like that, as said by an IRD spokesperson. But this is the challenge that I have. If people like that claim that they can be spending more money to make a better New Zealand and they want to do it by paying more tax, well, for starters, if you're a successful business person, you will know that the single worst person to manage your money the current lot that is there right now, I wouldn't, if I had my choice, I wouldn't be giving grant a single cent. I would much rather every cent of tax I pay go towards charitable or direct community organisations where I live and actually see things happen. Mm -hmm. If all of these people are that serious about wanting to give more money for New Zealand because they can, you know what? Pop down to Esk Valley, guys. Pop down to Esk Valley, bring down relief, bring down diggers, hire an army of people and dig out the, bloody silt that is still sitting there and has been sitting there since the 14th of February. Put your money where your mouth is. Stop talking with these weasel words. Stop talking with these vacuous letters and virtue signalling to New Zealanders because we're sick of it. Absolutely sick of it. You'd
1: think that we'd be hearing, you know, that they'd be doing better PR on the charities that are set up by all socialists in the Beehive at the moment who hate people who earn $300,000 a year. You know, you'd think they'd want to shrug off that, morally burdensome cash, but you never hear about it. I would say it's because it doesn't happen. No. The working class can kiss my ass. I've got the boss's job at last, as the song mm. used to go.
0: Sorry to get ranty people, but it just it, it, I get to a point where I just look at this and think, what do they say, dum less hui, more we?
1: Well, you know, speaking of Māoridom, it never comes up that maybe um, iwi businesses should pay tax. You know, there's some pretty wealthy people in... Uh, in those but i guess again it's it's less morally burdensome money
0: this is media matters with marie and marty marie i'm feeling a bit ranty today so i'm sorry everybody for being Ooh. so ranty i know i haven't this is the first time i actually had properly ranty rant i have got my ranty pants on today now that i've had a bit of a rant about virtue signaling let's sort of head into uh, a little bit of cultural appropriation shall we there's always a good place to be
1: yeah
0: Sunday Star Times, so yoga teachers and studios in Aotearoa are facing accusations of appropriating and capitalizing on the ancient Hindu practice. This is essentially a piece about a yoga practitioner who happens to be of Indian descent getting very, very upset with uh, how did she define them? Uh, others, on the other hand, have taken route of appropriating and capitalising on yoga, perhaps because it belongs to everyone rather than appreciating it and giving it the due respect to the people and culture that it comes from.
1: I could get ranty about this.
0: You can get ranty about this, this, this because this you have spent time in India.
1: Journalism fund story. It comes out of Te Herenga Waka, Uni- Victoria University of Wellington. Again, it's it's almost calculated to cause division.
0: I mean, I'm looking at this, seeing is this a way for them, of this yoga instructor, Reha Kuma, well, is she trying to drive more people to her yoga studio um, because she's got competitive pressures by people that she doesn't believe are culturally worthy in her view? I mean, that's me being cynical from a business perspective. I don't know. But the fact that surely... Anything that promotes well-being should be encouraged in this country. I work in the hand knitting industry. It was the Egyptians and the Babylonians that started that. I mean, am I going to get up in arms because I knit? And we're going to see Egyptians coming out saying, "No, you can't do hand knitting because you're culturally appropriating what was our craft."
1: No, it's it's bullshit, and it's got to stop. It's often the things that are unsaid, isn't it? I mean, this is out of Victoria University, this is the most pressing thing that they can come up with, their public interest journalism fund. You know, there's another article in the, I think it was, it was in the Weekend Herald about this woman who suffered the most dreadful sexual abuse from her stepfather from the age of three. Now, that wasn't paid for by the Public Interest Journalism Fund, but I have a friend who's been going through a similar journey, and I asked her about it, and she said that the system's, well, she said the system's effed. If you really did want to do something where people's lives are being horribly impacted, you'd really look at getting kids out of some of these situations and also ensuring that the men who've perpetrated these sort of outrages on children are stopped from continuing to do it. And I saw on Facebook, the government's running a program now, which, you know, I can sort of see the logic of it. It's a um, program for people who are minor attracted persons to undergo treatment. So this stuff's coming thick and fast. I know that there's another huge article on transitioning children, you know, trans transgender transitions. And again, are all these little links, you know. Victoria University was where John Money, the father of gen- gender identity, uh, came from. You never hear about him in all this, but he was a pedophile. He falsified research. He continued to claim that it was successful even after both of the uh, children that he famously experimented on, often sexually taking photos, had killed themselves. There's a lot that we're not saying. If if the government or the media are pointing in one direction, what I'm learning is you've got to look the other way. way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really worth every time we talk about this saying, it's nothing against transgender people. You know, it must be. It must be tough. The rottenness that all of this stuff taps into, once you start looking at it, whether it's Foucault and all the rotten stuff he did, or this guy, John Money, it taps into evil often, the political aspect of it. Looking at what's not being said while we're preoccupied with that's really not that important or even affects that many people.
0: I think you've hit the nail on the head and I had this with my conversation with Naomi earlier in the show is it's a distraction. A lot of this wokeism comes out. I've said it before. I'll say it again. It comes out of affluence. It requires affluence and comfort in order to survive. The minute you take that away, It will begin to crumble it is a distraction it is a distraction away from what the real economic issues are it's a distraction away from what the greater issues in terms of our governance is you know what is our country signing us up to what laws are they passing behind closed doors with zero submission time that we're not hearing about where is the money going what are they spending money on there is a piece actually something that i just saw recently a tender that's gone out by the government for a training program obviously the lowest Lobbed softball for the disinformation project, but it's an, it's an RFP that has gone out for training programs out to New Zealand to teach New Zealanders about how to recognise mis and disinformation. Right, because we, you know, we've got to have those academics, uh, activists, academics activists i can never remember which they are in a job i mean it's just it's all a distraction and i think getting back to what we do grassroots you know what if you're sick and tired of it guys and you're out there and you're looking at the stuff in the paper and i have to say i can only do it one day a week because i get too ranty you've seen my ranty pants today it's you actually just need to talk to your people around you, talk to your friends and neighbours, talk to your work colleagues, talk to the people within your local community. It's like a ripples in a pond and actually talk about what's really important.
1: I did a... I mean, I've been going down rabbit holes this week, but not the kind that uh, the disinformation and misinformation project would uh, have you believe. I've been going down rabbit holes of, for instance, the World Economic Forum are saying about digital currencies, about what the Reserve Bank... What work they've been doing on introducing a digital currency here, and with it, probably if China's anything to go by, and if our experiments with identity th- through COVID or anything to go by, it will come. It will come with a social credit system. Yeah, social credit system.
0: Well, they've already tested it out, haven't they?
1: They yeah, tested and, it out from
0: December twenty one to April twenty two.
1: They've yeah, already done the, the pilot the program. Spending more than ten thousand dollars in cash. Surprise, surprise, Europe have as well. It's all
0: in. If you've done anything in terms of banking or business and it's over a certain threshold, the anti-money laundering hoops that you have to jump through now, all in the guise, they say, to prevent crime, which, and I mean, it is utter bollocks, the stuff that Mm. you have to do. And I feel so sorry for the lawyers and the accountants because they're the ones that have been lumped with all of this to do it. And I say to them, at what purpose does this serve?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you can look at China and find out. China, this is from a website called Strident Conservative. Sounds like you today, uh, actually. (laughs) China doesn't only track spending habits, it controls them. The ultimate goal of digital currency. We We were treated to an example of how this works late last year when the Council of Europe announced plans to launch a digital currency and ban cash payments above €10,000. They're just like here. Yeah, um, I wonder if they're talking to each other under the guise of fighting terrorism and money laundering. Sounds nice until you realise their digital euro comes with spending limits, giving the European Central Bank the ability to restrict how people spend their money. Hmm. Here we go. Here and we so go. you know what you've got to look at. You know when we we're talking about woke. Most people talk about it as kind of a bit of foolishness. A better way to look at it is that everything that's in the paper, everything that you are discussing on that basis is something that people right up the top of the pyramid want you discussing. Everything that happens generally is something they want happening. And that often offers you a better insight into why things are happening.
0: If you want to do something in your local community, and I've been doing it a lot more lately, is that if, where I can, I pay cash. So yep. if I'm interacting with a small local business or uh, even just simple things like if I'm popping up for coffee, I pay cash. To prove that point that we need to maintain control of, of our own money. And, and also to actually get the consumer, the power of the consumer, because, of course, uh, the power of the consumer has been under attack as evil capitalism from our friends in critical social justice. But I want to update uh, a story that I've been following here and across the show over the last uh, several weeks. And that has been, of course, the brouhaha with Bud Light. And Bud Light created the single can to celebrate one year of transition for trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Uh, so just uh, released today, anheuser Bush, who are the parent company for Bud Light, make changes to the company amid Bud Light boycott. anheuser Bush revealed that they are making attempts to change its marketing structure in the midst of the backlash over the Bud Light-produced can featuring the transgender activist face for social media promotion. For the past month and a half, Bud Light sales have taken a nosedive after transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney posted a video in the namesake on the social media writing Bud Light Partner in a caption. That, med- that led many to believe the Night Bear was officially partnering with Mulvaney and would launch a campaign with the activist who was a biological male. Uh, so there were several high profile singers, that including Kid Rock, that apparently shot up a <laughs> created Bud Light with a with a machine gun, as you do, because they don't take your guns away over there, as we know. Weeks later, in a Bush and Bev CEO Michael Dukakis told investors in a call that there was no partnership with Mulvaney, so they're stepping this back, and that the only one can was produced with Mulvaney's face. The subsequent Financial Times interview claimed that the slumping of Bud Light sales was sparked by social media driven misinformation.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, this is again, I mean, we've talked about this in an earlier show. It's a desire by elites to make culture downstream from politics rather than the other way around. And you can see, I mean, I read the New Zealand Reserve Bank's Putia uh, Matua, the money father. Interesting. But, you know, they were talking about their response, the response of the public and about 7,000 submissions to their saying, hey, uh, we've had an idea. How, how, How do you guys, how would you like a digital currency? Which you know, just putting it out there, overwhelming majority of people didn't want one, but you can hear in what they're doing, it's well, we've got our plans, so we just have to get people on board. Just because we're not PRing it hard enough.
0: But surely, digital currencies have actually been around for a while. So what you're actually saying is a government and state-controlled digital currency, currency because things like
1: reserve banks aren't. Necessarily, Like the Federal Reserve is not a government organization. And when I learned that 25 years ago, it blew my mind. I started reading books about it. And the nefarious way it was bought in, everything's downstream of that, as I said earlier. Everything that, you're, that we're talking about with all these culture wars, you know, they've got very, very wealthy backers. And they do it for a reason. And that reason is not to improve the lot of ordinary people. Far from yes. it.
0: Yeah, so that's why we need to go go local and we need to improve it ourselves. So have you got anything cheerful?
1: Oh, there was a um, 22-year-old patched Mongols gang member arrested with an AK-47 and two banana mags. And it was interesting to read that alongside that Wokeness and PC killed Police ten-seven because there were too many Māori um, on it. You so- know, oh, if I'm talking to Māori, I've got a theory about this, Maria, I'll just tell you quickly. <laughs>
0: I've so got to start a piece now called "Marty's Got a Theory About This," but this is thinking about. Yeah, around. you know, I mean,
1: I've talked to Māori about this. Who sort of talk when they talk about you know how the justice system's unfair to Māori. I, I often say, look, I come from you know culturally, I'm a gentleman. I come from that culture where, if I'm murderously angry, I lose mana if I show it. So I'll say, well, you know, th- this really isn't working for me at all. I'm I'm not at all happy about this. Whereas. Māori come from a warrior culture where the emphasis is on appearing as murderous and angry as possible. Now, which works better in a routine traffic stop if we've each got an ounce of weed in our god box? Who's going home and who's going to jail? We might start, as uh, Shane Poe said, talking about mecha we might want to start looking at this before we move to insisting that the system's racist. There are some cultural aspects of it. Yes, there are. So that was my light thing.
0: Uh, that, that was your uh, right. Okay, AK47s okay. and thing. good, good to good to see that the gun buyback was working so well.
1: Well, yeah, don't. There was that meme where um, Jacinda's hugging uh, mongrel mob, patch mongrel mob member, saying, "Don't worry, we only took the guns off the good people," mm. and and you know, again, that feeds into my other theory that governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more government. The power goes out, if the supermarket's empty, if the water's not working, you've got all of these ferals with these, well, gee, I, I, you know, if you start firing off a gun like an AK-47, it goes through a couple of houses and goes through anything squishy that's in them. Those guys start kicking off with that sort of hardware, people are gonna be asking for less freedom and more government. And you know, a cynical Mm -hmm. person, as I've become, might say, well, that's exactly what they're... That's why they haven't gone hard on gangs. They're there as the boogeyman.
0: Yes, you've got to have a bad guy in the story. You've got to have a bad guy. Well, I've got something really quick, um, sweet and cute to actually finish things off. The world's oldest dog celebrates its 31st birthday. I bet it was a small
1: dog, was it? I always worry about... Actually, the
0: surprisingly about not. It's about oh. the size of a Labrador, yeah. The world's oldest dog recently celebrated its 31st birthday, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Bobby, a pure-bred raffaero de Alenteo, a breed of Portuguese dog, celebrated during a party over the weekend at his home in, in rural Portugal, where he's lived his entire life. More than 100 people attended a very traditional Portuguese party, um, owner Leonel Costa said. Local meats and fish were served up to the 100 guests, with extra for Bobby, who only eats human food. A dance troupe also performed with Bobby, participating in one of its routines. Costa has owned several old age dogs in the past, including Bobby's mother Gitta, who lived to the age of 18. However, Costa said he's never imagined any of his dogs would reach their 30s. We see situations like this as the normal result of the life that they have. But Bobby has has been one of a kind. One of the biggest contributing factors to Bobby's longevity is the calm, peaceful environment in which he lives. Bobby's birthdate has been confirmed by the Veterinary Medical Service in the town in which he was registered in 1992. Costa, now 38, was just eight years old when Bobby was born. For him, Bobby is a living reminder of his past. So there you go, 31-year-old. Oh, very chums, eh? I know, 31-year-old dog in Portugal. I have to say, my 10-and-a-half-year-old bulldog, um, he ain't ain't going to make 31. (laughs) He's struggling now at ten
1: and a half. Does so he only I eat think, human food?
0: No, he doesn't. No, he'd like to. It's maybe that's yeah, the I problem. Maybe it be a bit of it. No, that's that's the mastiff. That's the oh. uh, the, the, gar- the hundred plus kilo mastiff. That's the garbage guts. But I thought that was quite lovely. Thirty-one year old dog. dog. And even God, actually, New we Zealand. We've them. just lost our oldest man this week as well. After his what a hundred and seventh birthday. Thank you so much for this week. Um, we will be chewing into budget next week; that is guaranteed. So make sure you tune in for that. I am sure there's going to be plenty of post mortem on the budget. And until then, make sure you have a really fantastic week. And thank you as always,
1: Marty. Stay safe, everybody, and uh, have a great week. Thanks. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR yeah, yeah. Reality
0: Check Radio. Check radio.